The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. It's good to see you guys. Uh, if you are new around here or maybe you're visiting with family uh, or friends, welcome. Uh, my name is Brian. Really, really thankful that you would uh, join us for worship this morning. Um, let's go ahead and turn our attention to God's words. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, uh, turn to Revelation chapter 21. Let's start near the end today. Um, today, as you know, as, we, as you can see, begins the season of Advent. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Advent, this is a season that has been practiced by the Christian church since at least the fourth century, so 1,700 or so years that the Christian church has been practicing this season. Advent simply means arrival or coming. And so Advent is a season where we are preparing. Uh, we're slowing down. We are um, looking back on the first arrival, the first coming of Christ, and uh, reflecting on that and, and are grateful for that and uh, express our gratitude in the fact that Jesus came. And then we're also looking forward to the second coming, the second arrival of, of the Lord Jesus when he comes to make all things new. So the purpose is not primarily Christmas. Like Advent is not just a season of preparing for Christmas. It's actually a season of anticipation for the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. So we look back and we look forward. Now, um, the way we're going to do this series is, uh, I, I don't remember who said this, but I heard a, a, a number of years ago a, a quick summary of the scripture, which I thought was really helpful. And that is that the Old Testament is anticipation of the Christ. Uh, that the Gospels are the manifestation of the Christ. That the book of Acts is the proclamation of the Christ. That the New Testament epistles, the letters, are the explanation of the Christ. And then the book of Revelation is the consummation of the Christ, his coming again. And so we're going to start this series at the end, because that's where we find ourselves in the story, is having seen the coming of Christ once, we are anticipating again his arrival, his coming. And, um, you know, there's an old phrase that we use in the Christian church, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And it will be glorious. I'm not sure I understand. <sighs> <laughs> Always forget to turn it to airplane mode. So we're just going to airplane mode that mother. Okay. Uh, the, the return of Christ will be glorious and only, listen clearly, only a glorious future worth looking forward to, makes this life worth enduring. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 21, just a handful of verses here, uh, and then we will get into uh, the meat of the sermon. But um, man, this is a great passage, and I hope that it blesses you. So look with me at Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. John, the author of the book of Revelation, says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am grateful to be with these brothers and sisters this morning, grateful um, just for their presence here um, as we gather under the authority of your word and in the presence of your spirit. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we open this passage of scripture, as we study this passage, that you would speak to us by your spirit, through your word, that you would minister to each of us in the places of brokenness and pain and hardship and hopelessness that we might be walking in, that we might walk out of here with deeper confidence in Christ. That is our prayer. And so would you, would you just minister to us this morning, as we minister to you through our worship, would you minister to us through your word? Uh, Holy Spirit, help me to rightly divide this passage so that it may be a blessing to your people. Do what only you can do. This we ask in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Now, the book of Revelation, as you may know, was written by John the Apostle. You may know that because I just said that a minute ago. But uh, John is one of Jesus' closest friends, okay? He's one of those inner three. He was the one who calls himself the beloved disciple, which I always loved in the Gospel of John. He goes, the beloved disciple, and he's talking about himself. I mean, it's kind of funny, but he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he also wrote the book of Revelation. Now, um, this isn't recorded in Scripture, uh, but the church father, Tertullian, uh, wrote in, in a book uh, that, that he put together, um, speaking of John, that uh, he was put into boiling oil like your Thanksgiving turkey, but he didn't die. And so <clears throat> the Romans didn't know what to do with him because uh, he, he didn't die. And so they exile him to the island of Patmos, and it's there he receives a vision of heaven, a vision of things to come. Uh, and he writes this book called Revelation. Now, the book historically has been hard to interpret and understand. It's full of imagery and symbolism. And so we have to be very careful as we wade through this book. And yet there are some very clear things that are uh, for us and that, that are helpful to us. Now, John wrote this book to early Christ followers. This is roughly 90s uh, AD, so the early you know, century of the church. And, and they were about to face some very intense hardship and persecution. And so he wrote this to them, giving them a vision of what is to come uh, to help sustain their hope through very, very dark days. And I think the same is true for us as well. 
Um, these days we live in seem to be increasing uh, in their precariousness and in their darkness. And yet for those who have hope in the life to come, uh, we, we can sustain through it. So, um, you know, Jesus told us the kingdom of God was at hand, right? This is the first words that he says out of the gospel of Mark. Uh, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what he meant was that, that as Jesus came into the world, the kingdom of God was breaking into every aspect of existence, every category of existence. And yet he didn't bring it fully, did he? The kingdom of God is both um, already and not yet. And, and that's where we find ourselves, is living in the time between the times, in this tension and so we need to understand, like, how, how do we get this vision of what's to come and, and just hold on to that to give us hope for what we endure here and now? If you're a note taker, my first point is this, the coming kingdom, the coming kingdom. Look back at the text with me, verse 1 of chapter 21. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The, the kingdom is coming. So John has this picture, this vision that he's given of the day of consummation, right? The day when the kingdom will come in fullness. And he says it was a new heaven and a new earth. Now you have to know that in the original language, there's two different words for new, okay? The word used here has to do with new in quality or of a different nature from the old. So not new in time, new in nature. This is really important because what we see here is a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, a remade, renewed physical creation without the effects of the fall. He says the sea was no more. Now that doesn't mean there's no ocean for you Beach lovers, you can rest assured, okay? There is still going to be water. Some of us were like, yes, no ocean, but that's not true. What, what he means here is this. In the Old Testament, the sea was often used of um, a, a picture of turbulence and violence and um, darkness and evil and, and unknown. Um, and so John is saying, in this renewed, remade earth, there's none of that. All the darkness and all the evil and all the turbulence is done away with. He says, I saw a new Jerusalem, the holy city, coming down out of heaven. We see a physical city. You know, it's interesting that um, if, you go, if you look at the book of Genesis, so, so God creates the garden, right, in Genesis. <clears throat> and that's where he wants his people to dwell is in the garden, who created the first city? Do you know? Cain. In Genesis chapter 4. Cain's an evil, wicked man, and he builds a city essentially to escape the presence of God. That kind of caught on, didn't it? <laughs> and so, what does God do with the structure, the place that we built in order to escape the presence of God? He turns it into heaven. <laughs> There's a holy city coming down, a physical city. So some of us that grew up with this idea that heaven is this sort of ethereal, cloud-like place where we all like wear a robe and play a harp for all of eternity, which doesn't sound like heaven to most of us. And that's not true. This is a physical 
a city coming down, heaven coming to earth. The kingdom of heaven is not about so much us escaping this earth to go to God as much as it is God coming down to us to remake this place. Isn't that glorious? And we know that's true because when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he was resurrected what? Bodily, physically, right? And the scripture tells us that he was a the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the down payment on this remaking. So he's, he's, he's glorified. He's different than just, you know, he can walk through walls, but he can also eat fish. There's something to this glorified state that Jesus exists in. He says his resurrection is the down payment on the rest of the world. <clears throat> in fact, we don't have time for this, but if you were to go on, and I encourage you to do this later. If you look like at verses 11 through the end of the chapter in chapter 21, what you're going to find is John describing the physical creation there. Walls, buildings, gates, streets. But here's the difference. The only way he can describe them is to think of the most beautiful, valuable materials that we have on earth. Emeralds and gold and jewels and he goes, yeah, yeah, that's like bricks and, and, and pavement there. This is how glorious heaven is. This is how glorious this new creation is. That the things that we prize here, the most valuable materials that we have on this entire earth are just everyday ordinary building materials in the kingdom of heaven. And that's something. Think about this. Everything good and right and enjoyable and beautiful about this world will be remade even better. The most stunning sunset you have ever seen in your life, the one that stopped you in your tracks and you marveled at the glory of God, that's just a Wednesday in heaven. The best meal you have ever eaten in your life that caused you to well up with praise at the God who created cows to be steak? <laughs> it's just the buffet line in heaven. Every experience that you've had, every holy experience you've had on this earth that has brought you joy is just a foretaste of what's to come. Even work will be remade. Did you know that? I know some of you thought, I'm retired. I thought, I can't be retired in heaven? Nope, sorry. You'll have work to do. It's a city. It needs workers, right? Uh, in Revelation 22, it says that we, there will be servants. We will serve our king. But work will be remade without thorns and thistles. Have you ever gone back to a place that you spent a lot of time as, as a kid, like, let's say, um, you know, I, I remember, for instance, um, I, there was this one house that we rented in Florida when I lived in Florida. And we lived there for five or six years. And I remember the backyard just being like amazing. And it was a cool neighborhood. I rode my bike everywhere without a helmet. That was the 80s, rode to school, rode to my grandparents' house across four lanes of traffic. It was a wild time. Um, but I went back to that neighborhood as an adult. And I was like, huh, it seems a lot smaller and less grandiose than when I was eight. You ever had that experience? Why, do, why does that happen? 
Because there is something in all of us that longs for what is good and true and beautiful. And there is nothing on this earth as it is that will ever satisfy the desires that we have for that which is good and true and beautiful. Which is why study after study will show you that Americans are some of the wealthiest people on earth and also some of the saddest. We have it all, and it's not enough. Because those material things of this earth will not satisfy that eternal longing that God has placed in our souls. But John says, there's a day coming. For those who are in Christ, there is a day coming. There is a kingdom coming. And you will be with your king and you will be fully and finally satisfied. Isn't that good news? <laughs> and so we see here the coming kingdom. But secondly, I want, you, I want to point out to you the presence of the king. The presence of the king. Look back at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne. So this is God speaking. A loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The presence of the king. So not only is the new Jerusalem a city, it's a people, it's us. It's those who are in Christ, prepared as a bride for her husband, right? The church is the bride of Christ, so this is us. And there's a voice from the throne, the king speaking. The dwelling place of God will be with man. We will be with him. We will be with him. Now, you know that in the Old Testament, the presence of God was said to dwell in the temple. Right? First the tabernacle and then the temple. Okay? And then Jesus comes on the scene. and um, Those first lines of, of John's gospel, when he says um, uh, that he... Uh, he, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that he took on flesh and blood. And I think it's the message um, paraphrase that says he moved into the neighborhood, <laughs> right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus left heaven, came to dwell, to tabernacle with us on this earth. And Jesus lived a life none of us could live. And he died the death all of us deserved to die. And he rose again from the dead. And in his rising, he sends to us the spirit of God who is to dwell within us. So all of our earthly life, the Holy Spirit dwells within us as a um, seal of our inheritance to come. That's what Ephesians says, right? So we have the presence of God's spirit within us in this life, to, to carry us through this life. But then there is a day, one day coming, when God himself will be with us forever. And we will be completely and totally satisfied in him, which means we will never feel distant from God again. That's, that's big, Right? Because some of us, we, we walk faithfully, right? We read the scripture, we pray, we come to worship, we serve, and yet God feels 
like he's very far away at times, doesn't he? And we think, where did he go? And it's those of us who've experienced his presence who also recognize his absence. But there's a day coming when his presence will be with us. In fact, in Revelation 22, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read for you a couple verses um, in Revelation 22. Listen to what he says here about us. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. You will see your king face to face. So connected to him so um, infused with his presence that it's almost as if some translations say that our names are tattooed on his, our, our, his name tattooed on our foreheads. It's, it's not that, literally. It's just that his presence will be so permanent with us, it's as if it's a tattoo. Does that make sense? Like what makes the kingdom of heaven worth it is not so much the absence of sin and evil, though that's amazing. What makes the kingdom of heaven worth it is the presence of God. God will be there, and we will be with him forever. That's amazing. He says night will be no more. This is symbolic, right? God who is the light, who shines into the darkness, the darkness will not overcome it. Let me put it this way. To be with him to be with him will be so glorious that not even we will care about our dark past. The joy in the presence of God, Psalm 16 says, there's fullness of joy in your presence. But we, we don't experience the fullness of joy until here, when we're in his presence physically, and the, the, the fullness of joy that we will experience in the presence of God will be so formidable that there will not be any room for anxiety or shame or guilt. We will, we will look into his eyes. And when we look into the eyes of God, we will find such affection and such love that we will laugh at all the things that torment and traumatize us here on this earth, if they even come to our mind. And the same hands that were pierced for us, the scripture just said, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's incredible. He says there will be no more death, 
No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. Can you even fathom that? <laughs> no more death. No mourning. No crying. That's like all we do here on earth. <sighs> Listen. I mean, I don't, sound, I don't mean to sound morbid, but every breath you take here is a living death. You are one step closer than you were a minute ago. So this whole idea that like when you die, that's the afterlife. No, no, no. This is the pre-life. This living death is the pre-life to real life to come. No more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. That means no illness, no disease, no hospitals. No chemo units, no pharmacies, no doctors, nurses, no insurance. Praise God. <laughs> no hospice, no funeral homes, no goodbyes, no tragedies, no police, no lawyers, no I 26. <laughs> No fear of getting old. No aches and pains when you wake up in the morning. No sadness. No depression. No anxiety. No fear. No fallings out. No betrayal. No backbiting. No misunderstandings. No abandonment. Those are the former things. And they've all passed away. And here's the beauty. You and I will finally be able to look out through our own very eyes without any self-focus or self-interest or pride or shame or self-protection or insecurity or suspicion. And we will look into the eyes of our gracious king and we will be satisfied in his presence forever. <laughs> the presence of the king. You starting to see why we started Advent with Revelation? <laughs> this isn't just the countdown to the presence under the tree, y'all. Let's look at this last bit here, um, verses five and six. Let me, let me show you. So some of you are going, okay, that sounds amazing. Like it does. I get it. It sounds great. But how can we really be sure that this vision that John had will actually become reality one day? How can we know that? How can we have confidence in that? How can we be sure of that? And on the one hand, I would say to you, um, I can't prove it. You have to take it by faith. On the other hand, I would say it's, it's more real than the chair you're sitting on. And I want to show you why. Um, I wrote down at least three reasons. I'm calling this last section the promise of the king. The promise of the king. Look at verses 5 and 6 one more time. And he who is seated on the throne... 
that would be the king, said, behold. Now, behold doesn't just mean, some translations say look, but it's like contemplate, you know? Really study this. Consider it. Think on it. Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the beginning and the end. The first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am the Alpha and the, the, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Okay, so how can we know that th this vision that John has had of, of the day to come in Revelation is actually going to become reality? First of all, Jesus said, write it down. And when Jesus tells you to write something down, you write it down. So this, because this is Jesus speaking. This is not John postulating. This is not John's speculation about the day, <coughs> excuse me, to come. This is the revelation of Jesus himself. He is revealing this to John and he said, write it down. Take notes. Jesus wanted it preserved so that you and I could have confidence, could have assurance, could know that this is what's going to happen. He even says, these words are trustworthy and true. Which means that God in the flesh, Jesus himself, is staking his own very reputation on whether or not this becomes reality. You see? If Jesus said these words are trustworthy and true and they don't come to pass, then Jesus is not trustworthy or true. God is staking his own reputation on whether or not this comes to pass. And I don't know if you know this, but God's good for his word. So when he says here, it is done, um, I looked into this, and if you dig down a few layers under the language here, it, he doesn't just mean like one thing is done, it is done. Uh, another way to translate this as everything is done. It's all finished. I, I completed all of it. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. And I say, it's all done. It's all finished. I have completed all of it, which means we can count that as it is as good as completed. You, you trying with me on that? Okay, here's my second reason why I think we can count on this. Because Jesus has already proven himself. He's already come once. There's already been one advent. We're looking at the second advent. If none of the promises of the coming of Christ had been fulfilled and Jesus made this promise, we'd go, well, I don't know. But he has. We, we are living, as I said earlier, in the time between the times, the time between his advents. Christ has come. Christ will come again, you see. Now, scholars have looked into this. And a conservative estimate is that Jesus fulfilled no less than 324 individual specific prophecies related to the coming of Messiah. Now, somebody did the math on that, and, and they actually just scaled it back and said, what, what are the chances that one person in all of human history, just at random, could fulfill even 48 of those promises? And the number was very large. It was like one in one one in 10 to the, I think it was 17th power. That's a lot of zeros. I don't even, it's a lot, okay? In other words, 
It's not possible unless it happened. Nevertheless, 324. So at least 324 individual prophecies about the coming of the Messiah have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So what on earth gives us any reason to doubt that he will fulfill the rest? It's comical, right? We're going, oh yeah, I guess, I guess he is trustworthy after all. So he said, write it down. He's already proven himself. And then finally, look back at the text here. Now this, you'll have to f- follow my train of thought here, which is, I'm gonna, it's a wild ride. I'm going to let you know out of the gate, okay? So he says in verse six, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Notice that he doesn't say to the good. To the obedient, to the to the thirsty. The only condition is thirst. Thirst for what? Well, we all thirst for something, don't we? Some of us thirst for recognition, achievement, meaning, purpose, to be loved. And all of those thirsts ultimately are a thirst for God. Uh, I believe it was G.K. Chesterton who said, every man who walks into the door of a brothel is actually looking for God. Because again, there's an eternal longing in the heart that nothing on this earth will actually satisfy. And, and John's brilliant at this because in, in John's gospel, he points this out multiple times. Um, John chapter four, the woman at the well. If you know the story, I'll quickly summarize. Jesus comes to this well in Samaria, of all places. <clears throat> um, it's, it's noon, it's hot. He sends his disciples away to get some food. Here's this woman who comes to the well. She shouldn't be there at noon because that's not the time you go get water. And she's there alone, and Jesus is with her, and he asks her for water, and they the, enter this conversation. And Jesus says to her, if you knew who you were speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water, and you would never thirst again. And she thinks he's still talking about water until he begins to reveal to her things about her own journey, the brokenness of her life, you know? And then she realizes who he is. And she says, sir, may I have this water? And he sends her away. She comes back with a crowd. She says, I want you to meet the man who's told me everything I've ever done. Like she got it. She got that Jesus provides a living water that will satisfy every thirst and longing of the human soul. Fast forward to John chapter 7. There's a the festival of booths is happening, uh, Jewish feast, and uh, it's the last day of the feast. Now, they had this water ceremony that happened every day of the feast, <clears throat> except for the last day. And on the last day, they're sort of cleaning up, breaking down things, and they didn't do the water ceremony. It was dry, it was quiet, they didn't do it. And it's on that day that Jesus stands up, and he cries out, all who are thirsty, come to me, and I will give you springs of living water. That will satisfy. See, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was saying to them, all of your attempts at being righteous before God, all of the ceremonies, all the festivals, all the attempts that you make 
to find satisfaction are falling short, but come to me and I will bring you to satisfaction. I will bring you, there is something that your soul needs as much as your body needs water. And you can have it for free. For free. Right here. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. <laughs> How is that possible? Because again, John's gospel, at the very end of Jesus' earthly life, he's nailed to the cross. <clears throat> and among the last words of Jesus are this, I thirst. Now, <clears throat> was he speaking of physical thirst? Maybe, but Jesus always is calculated in his words, and he is acknowledging a deeper thirst. I'll put it this way. Jesus experienced the ultimate thirst so that you and I could have water without cost. He experienced a spiritual desert so that we could have a flourishing spring. And, and in those last moments from the cross, the final thing that Jesus cries out, one of the final things, depending on how you read it, what does he say? It is finished. And he said to me, it is done. <laughs> Everything is done. It's finished. It, to telestai, it's done. It's completed. In other words, every bit of cost necessary was paid in full. That's how you can drink freely without payment because Jesus paid the ultimate cost on your behalf. Jesus went to the cross taking your shame and your guilt and your sorrow and your selfishness and your sin upon himself. He paid the cost so that you could drink from the springs of life without cost forever. And when Jesus rose from death, as I said earlier, this was the first fruits, the down payment that he is going to make all things new. Now here's, I hope that made sense. And there's a little bit of a circuitous route to get there. Now here, here's where we find ourselves. There's a promise to come. There's a life we still live. And in this life that we still live, it's full of brokenness and it's full of tears and it's full of death and it's full of crying and it's full of pain. So what do we do? I mean, in one sense, that's what Advent is all about. That we, like God's people in the hundreds of years before Jesus came the first time, are longing with eager expectation for the return of our Savior with the promise that he will make all things new. We know we can have confidence that the darkness will not overcome the light. And we pray that the Lord does not tarry. And so we do what the believers centuries, over the last several centuries have done before. We set our minds on things above. Did you know, I, I, this was shocking to me. I did not realize it until my studies this week. The Lord's second advent, the return of Christ, is mentioned no less than 300 times in the New Testament. That's one in every 13 verses in the Gospels and one in every 10 verses in the entire, in the epistles. Sorry, one in 13 in the New Testament total, one in 10 in the letters, in the epistles. By contrast, 
Baptism is mentioned a total of 19 times in the New Testament. The Lord's Supper, communion, is mentioned three or four times in all of the New Testament. The second return of Christ is mentioned at least 300 times. So there's this old phrase, don't be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I've never met that person, by the way. I think we could stand to be a little bit more heavenly minded, don't you? (laughs) I think we could do with dwelling on the return of our Savior a little bit more than we do. Talking about it a little bit more than we do. Keeping the return, the advent of our King in perspective. Because we are hope-shaped creatures. The way we live now is shaped by our vision of the future. Which is why so many Americans are depressed and anxious because we have no vision of the future. We are without hope. And if this is all there is, and then you close your eyes and you join the worms in the dirt, why go on? But if heaven awaits us, if the glorious return of our king and the making of all things new awaits us, then like Paul, we say, the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. And so we set our hope on what will be, and the Holy Spirit of God gives us endurance in the now. And we will be able to say, like St. Teresa of Avila, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. So let me close with these words from the book of Isaiah. And then I have one question for you, and we'll move to communion. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen? Amen. Uh, One question I just want to pose to you before we move into our time of response, and it is this. How can a vision of the glorious future to come strengthen my hope in the present? Now listen, I know some of you are dealing with very hard and dark circumstances. Um, Some of you are coming out of those dark and hard circumstances, and some of you are about to enter them. And yet for, for all of us, wherever we find ourselves, it's a vision of the glorious future to come that actually can sustain us and give us hope in the present. How can that happen for you? just want you to take note of that, maybe dwell on that as we move into our time of communion, maybe even make that uh, a prayer point for the next couple days as we move through the Advent season. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite you to respond to the Lord. We do that in a few ways here at Steadfast Church. Uh, One is through communion. And so if you're a follower of Christ, um, 
this, this is our chance to dwell on that glorious future to come. This communion meal is both a remembrance of what Christ has done for us in his broken body and shed blood, but it's also a foretaste of that feast to come with our Savior. And so we come in repentance, we come in thanksgiving, we come in hope to these tables, break, uh, taking a piece of the bread, di- dipping into the juice or the wine, whatever our conscience allows. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can just stay seated during this time. As you make your way back to uh, your seats, there are black boxes in the back. If you want to give an offering to support the ministry, the work of Jesus through this church, you can do that. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we would not ask you to give, but you can fill out a connect card for us and just let us know that you were here. Uh, if there's a way we can pray for you, we love to pray for our people. And so the back side of that connect card can be used for prayers. And you can just drop them in those black giving boxes in the back. And then uh, the band's going to return, lead us in a few songs as we uh, make our way out of here this morning, celebrating the gospel through song. Father, I thank you for these men and women and for an opportunity to open the scriptures and just allow you by your spirit and through your word to encourage us, to fill us with hope. This life is so hard at times and it feels so pointless at times. And yet, You have purpose in every hard thing and in every bit of suffering that we endure. Um, Even the joys we experience here are but a foretaste of the joys to come. And the pain that we experience here will not even compare to the glory that will be revealed. So Lord, help us to live this life faithfully, trusting in you, clinging to you, full of faith, enduring with hope that glorious day that awaits us. We love you, and we're grateful to be your children um, by the blood of Christ. And so now as we respond, would you be honored and glorified in in these brief moments we have together in in worship, in communion? um, Would you bring us joy in your presence, just a taste of the joy we will have forever? We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus and pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.